So we're not starting out light this morning. I want to share with you part of my own story. I'm going to try very hard to not squint. My husband tells me every time I'm up here that I, I squint. I'm going to try. just caught myself. So I'm going to take you to a moment when I was 17 years old, and I was at a lady's house named Betsy Tinker, and I had been babysitting her son, and I had put her son to bed, and I was alone in the house. And I was sitting on the couch, sobbing, overcome with the deepest grief and despair that I had ever felt up to that point in my life. And I would say I still haven't felt that deep despair that I felt in that moment. And the emotions were just like a tidal wave that kept crashing over me, and I I couldn't stop it. And I felt so hopeless that a thought popped into my head. And the thought was this, it would truly be so much easier right now to just end it all. And, and that thought wasn't a sad thought. It wasn't like a scary and dangerous thought to me. That thought felt like rest. It felt like relief. It felt like my ticket out of this situation. And so surprisingly, at this point in my life, 17 years old, I was at a wonderful point in my life. I had a a very stable family who I adored. I had grown up in such a good home, and and I still believe that. I had a very close relationship with my parents, and I would have said they were both my heroes. Um, I had a real and vibrant faith. My faith with Jesus was real. I was a straight-A student. Some would say I was like a poster child for kind of that idyllic Christian upbringing. And little did I know, my identity was totally wrapped up in that, in all of those factors being stable in my life. But at this point on the couch, I just experienced the greatest loss in my life. I had recently confessed to my parents a choice that I had made. And in that point of confession, I knew that there would be an impact on my relationship with them. But there was no way that I could have anticipated how extreme it would be. And as soon as I had confessed, what what began was a process of what felt like my family and my community disowning me. And being treated like a stranger. I remember that my, my dad, he was so disappointed in me that when I would walk into the room, he wouldn't even acknowledge my presence. And I would drive my sister to school every day, and she would do the same. She wouldn't engage with me. And my parents didn't know what to do with their 17-year-old daughter, so they had gone to the elders in the church seeking advice. And, of course, they didn't know how to help them. So all that meant was everybody in church knew what was going on in my life. Church was no longer a safe place. I was no longer allowed to serve on the worship team. My position in the youth group completely changed. Church wasn't safe. Home wasn't safe. My identity had been lost. And I felt like I was drowning in shame and that my identity had crumbled. But with all that, all of that going on, really the one thing that pierced deeper than anything else was my father's rejection of me. 
And we had, we had such a close relationship. We had a very close bond from a very, very early age. And it was like I had accidentally stumbled upon the one thing that could destroy that bond. And I have to say, my dad is in the room this morning. <laughs> and most of you know, he's one of my favorite people in the world. And I'm closer to him than most. And all of this has been restored. He, he came back later after I was married and apologized and... And we are in right standing with each other. Otherwise, I wouldn't be sharing this story. But this point was the darkest point of my life. And when you're 17, you don't know that you're not powerful enough to destroy the whole world as you know it. You really think you, really think you have the ability to do that. But it doesn't really matter what age you are. When you've placed your identity in something or in someone... And a love that you understood to be completely conditional all of a sudden becomes conditional. It's completely disorienting, right? Like when you're rejected by someone you love, it does something to you. And at that point, I made a subconscious vow that I would only show up publicly and in close relationships when I felt like I was presentable. And that began a three-year season in my life where my behavior was completely destructive. And on the outside, it looked great. But I was hurting others, and I was hurting myself, and I, I didn't mean for it to be that way. But I was hell-bent on hiding my messy parts. And it's because humans aren't dumb. Like, we learn cause and effect. We learn that if I show up this way, people are applauding me, and I'm getting accolades, and I'm getting love, and I'm getting favor. When I show up this way, it's not happening. So (laughs) if our identity is not rooted in something deeper, we're just going to figure out how to show up. And I did that for a long time. And in this self-protection mode, love becomes a a means to an end. And the end is me. (laughs) I need to know that I'm enough. I need the way that you love me to validate me and who I am. I need you to make me feel great about myself. How effectively can you contribute to my agenda? I am the means to the end. And, And it might even look like love because we'll go, we'll, we'll make grand gestures to show love, and maybe we want to really feel like it's genuine, but it's still just us serving ourselves. We want that to be reciprocated. And it's really convenient because every story that the world gives us totally feeds this narcissistic narrative. Everywhere we go, we're told, you're enough, you're amazing, like cut the negativity. (laughs) I actually did a Google search of some self-love slogans And I wanted to share my favorites with you. (laughs) The first one, self-love is the greatest middle finger of all time. (laughs) Such a gem. (laughs) And the other one, just in case you've forgotten today, you matter, you're loved, you're worthy, you are magical. (laughs) I don't even know what that means. (laughs) And there's nothing implicitly wrong with some of those things. Like, sure, they're good, but they're rooted in something that is not stable. And, and inside, we feel that void. We're burning out. We feel like we're not enough. We feel our lack. But on and on, that cultural narrative just keeps rolling. And it's like we feel like 
If we shout it loud enough or if we receive it from others enough, it's going to be true. Like, no, 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 really, I'm enough. I'm enough. (laughs) I have a family member. (laughs) Oh, gosh. Uh, Our family is post-divorce a few years, so we're, like, figuring it out. And it's sad and it's tense and wine is present. But (laughs) we're, we're, this has happened too many times. I'll be sitting on the couch, like, kind of talking myself through it, trying to stay calm, trying to feel joy. And this family member will get in my face, like, with these eyes, with, like, the smile face, but not the smile eyes. (laughs) And they'll say, isn't this magical? (laughs) And I'm like, is it, like, if you say it, you think I'm going to be like, oh, yeah, you're right, it is. (laughs) Uh, But... All that to say, the facade and the repetition of these narratives, they're not working. And puffing ourselves up isn't cutting it. And that's why I think this passage in Mark is so critical and actually revolutionary. It says, In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open And the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice from heaven came. You are my beloved son. With you I'm well pleased. So just as in everything in Mark, this is the shortest account of all the gospels. It's only three verses. There's no fluff or extra details like in Matthew and Luke to really draw us in. But it seriously packs a punch. It's three verses. And in that short amount of space, we have Jesus' baptism, all three parts of the Godhead present and acting, and we have heaven literally being torn open for God to say something to us. Now, we're going to be talking about the Trinity this morning, and just to clue you in, I'm not a theologian, and I'm, I'm not going to unveil to you some secret that millennia of theologians before me haven't figured out about the Trinity. It is so mysterious, so complex, but it's exciting to learn more about it. So in this story, we have all three parts active and present, and it looks similar to creation. And Ryan has been talking about this for the last couple weeks. So in creation, in the creation story, we have God, God's spirit hovering over the waters, and we have God's word. And at the baptism, we have the father, we have the son, and we have the spirit as a dove. So everything in this story is cueing us. It's like alerting us to remember the creation story. And that shows us that in this moment, God's doing something new. He's making a new creation story. And here's what I love about the Trinity. And again, this is, this is Mandy's take on it. I feel like God laid it out with these different, almost storybook characters, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, because he's so, he's so multifaceted that were he to be just one, which he is one. Again, so confusing. <laughs> but I feel like he laid it out so it's easier for us to understand just how multifaceted he is. So these three characters are in constant relationship with one another. They're in constant community. And it's almost as if they're always passing the baton to the other. Always lifting up the other and referring to the others. And each of their personal characteristics complements the others. 
And they're never in isolation from one another. Their stance, if you will, towards each other is open. Open and aligned. The way C.S. Lewis puts it, if we can get it on the screen, he says, oh, wrong one. Maybe we don't have this one. I'm going to read it. It says, in Christianity, God is not a static thing, but a dynamic, pulsating activity, a life, almost a kind of a drama, almost, if you will not think me irreverent, a kind of dance. And I love that illustration. So let's take a look at the scenery of the moment. It says, when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open. And if you've been in Sunday school, I think we all kind of have this idea in our mind of what that looks like. It's like Jesus radiating light with like one beam (laughs) coming down to him, right? And like the perfectly white cloud sky. And then like, it's like a slit or something. I don't know, like a little tiny door up in the sky. (laughs) And the dove descends on beautiful white Jesus. (laughs) But... Uh, this is how N.T. Wright puts it. He says, it doesn't mean that Jesus saw a little door ajar miles up in the sky. Heaven in the Bible often means God's dimension behind ordinary reality. It's more as though an invisible curtain right in front of us was suddenly pulled back. So that instead of the trees and flowers and buildings, or in Jesus's case, the river, the sandy desert and the crowds, they're standing in the presence of a different reality all together. And so it's not really something that an artist can convey, is it? It's like a more real reality. And it's always there. It's here now. It's interesting. Mark uses a Greek verb, schizo. It looks like schizo. (laughs) But Matthew and Luke don't use this word. And this verb is a very graphic, a graphic word. And it's used to describe a cosmic event. So in this moment, God is literally altering time and space. And then <laughs> out pops a dove. <laughs> and I, uh, I just wondered, like, why a dove? And so I started looking into it. And I learned that in a lot of cultures, a dove is representative of motherhood. And I was like, whoa, that's very cool. But I didn't feel like it was grounds enough to actually share with you about, like, the mother heart of God. And as I studied more, I learned that in this passage, the the word used for spirit, the Hebrew word is ruach. (laughs) And (laughs) it's a grammatically feminine word. And that means that part of God's nature is his mother heart. And that can be a little jarring for some of us. But it's so beautiful, and it's actually... It's actually sprinkled throughout scripture. Jesus talks about wishing that he could be a mother hen and gather Jerusalem. Um, But doesn't it make sense? The Holy Spirit is called the comforter, the mother heart of God. So once again, everything in this passage is pointing us back to creation and the dove. Well, in Genesis 1-2, it says the spirit hovered over the face of the waters. And the Hebrew verb for this translates to fluttered. And the way Jewish rabbis translated this is, And the earth was without form and empty, and darkness was on the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God fluttered above the face of the waters like a dove. So once again, it's cueing us. Creation, new creation, 
Exodus, everything in this passage in Mark is about newness and about freedom. So God's clearly up to something big in these three little verses. So why did Jesus, who's God, need to get baptized? That's always been curious to me. And what does it have to do with God doing something new? If we look at John 5.19, maybe we'll have it on the screen. Yeah, that's part of it. The son can do nothing by himself. He does only what he sees the father doing. So whatever the father does, the son also does. So basically Jesus is on board with whatever the father is doing. And this baptism, baptism is all about repentance, as we know, which is all about a transferring of identity, which Ryan spoke about last week. And we think of repentance in pretty simplistic terms. Like it's, it's pretty easy. And actually the Merriam Webster definition says it's to feel or express sincere regret or remorse about one's wrongdoing or sin. So it's like saying sorry and that's it. But we know that's only part of what it is. Jonathan Pennington says repentance means reorienting our values, habits, Loves, thinking, and behavior according to a different understanding. One rooted in the revelation of God's nature and coming reign. And other, so other cultures know, other cultures know what a big deal baptism is. That when you come out of that water, you're claiming a new identity. You're claiming that you're a new person with a new, with a new allegiance. And that's what Jesus was doing. He was pledging his allegiance to the Father. He modeled his repentance by the alignment of his values, his habits, his loves, his thinking, his behavior. And that's illustrated in his baptism. And he took on his identity as a son of God publicly on the Judean countryside with hundreds of people around him. And we're told to have the same mindset. It says in Philippians, Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. And all through scripture, it talks about Jesus' humble stance. And if there's anybody who didn't need to be humble, it would be him. He's God. But he was reverently submitted to the Father at all times. And he showed us that the ability to bring something new, something beautiful to create in the world, first and foremost, begins with aligning ourselves with the Father. It's the first step, like before ministry, before, before we go out and do anything. That is the first step. So, if we hadn't have just read this passage, or maybe even heard it our whole lives, <laughs> if we were unfamiliar, unfamiliar with it, I think in our minds we would think, okay, what is, what's the Father going to give the Son to like bless him before he starts his ministry? And in our minds we would think he'll give him knowledge, He'll give him wisdom. He'll give him a solid work ethic or like a crystal clear vision so he can be a really good planner for what's going to happen. But no, we know that's not what he did. He spoke identity and he spoke love over him. And he literally tore open the heavens (laughs) to do this. I think some of us right now, (laughs) we're thinking like, woohoo. The Bible's talking about God loving Jesus and love and heaven again. 
<laughs> like, what does this even mean for me? I'm going to, like, check out because I've heard this nine million times. And I understand that. And I think that we need to be convinced that this means anything for us. Otherwise, it's just this, like, utopian little picture of God loving Jesus. And this is where it gets really cool to me. So in John 17, Jesus is praying to the Father about the people that the Father gave to him. And that's us. So the wording here gets a little tricky. This is Jesus talking to the Father. He says, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them, even as you have loved me. I have made you known to them, and I'll continue to make you known, in order that the love you have for me may be in them, and that I myself may be in them. This is one of my favorite passages, and it always has been. And it's saying, Jesus is in us, and the Father is in him. And so we're all one. We're all one with God. It literally says, the Father loves us as he has loved Jesus. And there's the proof. (laughs) This passage is speaking to us directly and individually. God had us in mind at the baptism of Jesus. We are his beloved. The message paraphrase says, you are my son, chosen and marked by my love, pride of my life. You are his daughter. You are his son. You are chosen. You have his mark on you. He handcrafted you. He handpicked you. And if that's true, what if God actually likes you? Like, okay, we know that we know that he loves us and, and he's God. But like what if he's interested in what makes you weirdly and uniquely you? What sets you apart from everyone else? Like I think <laughs> I think God chuckles at me when I have a bag of Cheetos. And I carefully chew one on each side evenly. And I have to end on an even number. (laughs) Like weird little idiosyncrasy. I think he chuckles. I think that he laughs at those of you that are freaking hilarious and you have the best jokes. I think that he delights in that person like cutting it loose on the dance floor and they look like a total idiot and they're full of joy. I think he delights in that. I think that he laments with you in your losses. And I think that he weeps with you over betrayal, over disillusionment, over death. I imagine it how Trent sees me. That man, (laughs) he's told me I'm beautiful in the least showered and greasiest version of myself, and I believe him. (laughs) It's like... He sees me for me in my ugliest, messiest, least put-together moments, and he means it. And he, and he makes fun of me, and he loves my little quirks, and it's because he loves me for me. And I think that's how the Father is, but of course, much more perfect. So let's go back to 17-year-old Mandy. So from that point until about a year and a half ago, so about 14 years, I had no idea, I was completely unaware that I was working to earn God's love. And 
I would have never, ever said that. I thought I was, I thought I was completely fine. And there were these little patterns of like isolating with people, especially that I noticed it, but I never made a connection that my, my relationship with the father had anything to do with that. Like if you were my friend and I was going through a really hard time, we could have been talking every day up to that point. And once that hard time hit, or once I didn't feel good about myself, I was going to ghost out on you. And it was actually in a faith walking 101 retreat that God gave me an image of myself in a time of solitude. And the image, the image was of me as a little girl. And I was in the corner like this. And I had my arm up. And I was shielding myself from the disappointment of my father. It was a very clear image. And it was from the Lord. And I think that each of us in this room has a stance before the father. And I'd be willing to bet many of us haven't recognized it. Wouldn't know how to put words on it. But I'd love to take the time to think about that this morning. What is your stance before the Father? If the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are completely open towards one another, completely vulnerable, complete, completely comfortable, what is your stance before the Father? Is it, is it a hiding stance like mine? Or is, it, or is it an earning stance like, look, Look at me, God. Look what I did. I'm serving in church. I'm doing good things. I'm smiling. I'm happy. (laughs) Look at me. Or is it a fearful stance? A stance of rejection? Like you're not even going to go there. Like screw God. Not even going to go there. We need to know. We need to know that this identity as sons and as daughters has been gifted to us. Like, it has been put on us, whether we recognize it or not, whether we're living it out or not. It's been put on to us. And, and if that's true, which it is, but when we accept it, that changes everything about our daily life. It changes every aspect, every scenario in your life. It means that you no longer... As a son, as a daughter, you don't have to be desperate for validation from people anymore. And you don't have to find yourself in utter desolation when you're hurt by someone. And you can actually walk, walk out your door in the morning in pre-forgiveness. Like meaning, you know, you know that people are going to be people. You know that they're not going to fully understand you fully validate you, fully see you in the way that you want to be seen, and they're going to hurt you. And you can have forgiveness for that. You don't have to walk in resentment. You can walk into a room knowing that you belong, whether the people in that room are giving that to you or not. You belong. You don't have to hold yourself back from your creative endeavors from those vulnerable things that are so uniquely you that the world might just smash them and it might just ruin you. You don't have to do that anymore. 
You can finally let yourselves be known vulnerably, and you can finally show up fully to your life. And all of those things are wrapped up, all of those fears, all of those inhibitions, they're wrapped up in fear. But First John says perfect love casts out fear. There's no more perfect love than this on offer anywhere else in the world. Every other, I would argue, every other religion is a religion of striving and of earning. And it's rooted in what you can do for the sake of what you can earn. Now, (laughs) I don't know if you've taken this identity on or not. And you might have heard it since Sunday school. You might, you might even grasp this love intellectually. Like you can totally track with what the father said here or, or talks about it or you've read the Bible. You might even experience it in a really powerful like worship time. But is it actually radiating through you in every aspect of your life? Like when you miss the mark over and over and over and you can't get it right. Or when others around you do it. Or when you experience moral failure and you you do the thing that you said you would never do. Has this love impacted that situation? Or when you're staring at the face of someone that you cannot stand, you despise them. Has this love impacted that situation? Or what about your self-talk? When you are tearing yourself down internally and speaking words to yourself that you would never speak to someone else. Has that love impacted that scenario? And an encounter with the Father's love is so, so important. And that has been my prayer for us in leading up to this more than anything like an encounter, moving away from the head and into the heart. And I'm continuing to pray that over us. It's it's pivotal. But I know a lot of people who have had an encounter. And healing has been imparted to them. And they go out living their life like nothing has changed because the encounter was enough. Because that spiritual high, that going to camp, that amazing time of worship, that was, they thought that was enough. Like, it's like this magic band-aid. And that we don't have responsibility in turn after that encounter. And so, of course, if you have not had an encounter with the love of the Father, pray for that. Ask for that. Look for that. And then, action and community are what make the people of God whole. Steps need to be taken. Like, do you need to get some good therapy? And if that idea sounds repulsive to you, maybe there's something to that. Like, do you need to engage in community in a different way? There's, a, there's people here, I know you show up, <laughs> and you're smiling, and you're happy, and you're hiding on the inside. And I want to say this morning that this community is available to you. And I also want to say people in this community may hurt you. Like people in the church are going to hurt you. That's always been true. But there's also those same people that can change your life. 
And if God is in the business of making things new, he's going to continue to do that. And he's doing something new in you today. And he's not doing it in a way, he's doing it in a way that from what he's already done, the newness is coming from what he has already done. And it's available to you today. So I encourage you this week to set aside time and really, really reflect, like, what is, what is my stance before the Father? And what action do I need to take to be a part?